Welcome back, everyone, to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias. How you doing today, buddy? Oh, man, I am awesome. I actually got to watch uh, Jeff Bezos and his brother, a guy named Wally Funk, and a kid named Oliver go to space this morning. So that was that was really cool. So I didn't see it. I knew they were going. Um, was it like they just went for a brief time and came back, or what? What's yeah, the so the whole the whole trip took ten and a half minutes, ten minutes and thirty seconds. So really, they launch in this rocket. There's a pod on the top. They get to a certain elevation. The pod separates from the launching part of the rocket, and then uh, they made it up past the. I can't remember what the line's called, but it's like the internationally recognized elevation to be in outer space. Okay. And then came back, and the uh, the two different parts of the aircraft or the spacecraft landed in their two different landing areas, and the people commenting, and then what it appeared to me, everything went according to plan, and so I'm sure that was a really good. I don't. Know, I thought it was really cool. I was juiced and. I didn't go. I just watched. So it no, was it's, pretty cool. It is cool because it's there's like this little battle between a few companies trying to get there, but they're all playing nice in the sandbox. Yeah, it's really Virgin Galactic, um, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos and and uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk. And what's interesting is you can actually buy a ticket to go. And I know I asked you earlier what the cost of a ticket was. And you're like, well, I don't really know. So I, I pulled it up here. Virgin Galactics, you can get a ticket. And that's Richard Branson's company, by the way. Um, you can get a ticket for $250,000. That includes a spacesuit. That, that seems like a relative bargain. Um, Did you find what Bezos is going to charge to I've do got, that? I've got all of them. Okay. Uh, so passengers going to go on SpaceX, $55 million. They get a sleeping bag and hygiene products. And Blue Origin, $28 million, uh, comes with a seat next to Jeff Bezos. So it's pretty expensive to go. Yeah. But I think it's it's interesting, and it's one of those things we talked about in our last show. If you remember back to that TikTok video, the Amazon video, where they thought at one time Amazon was just selling books. Right. right, and the company yeah. is way overvalued. Yeah, and then there it's, were analysts saying, well, they'd have to sell every book in the world to even be profitable. This is kind of the same thing because this is kind of a pioneering frontier as to what this unknown world of space travel could be. Um, and there are investments which you can have access or um, exposure to space-type missions or not, you know, something – to that effect, space and robotics. Right. Exposure to like this new space exploration industry that's starting to form. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that's really cool. And it made me do a little research to see what was going on. But it kind of shows also the separation in kind of income inequality potentially between the 1% <laughs> who can afford to drop, you know, quarter million or 28 million on a flight and average everyday um, investor, which I was reading an article on um, MSN, and the article was titled um, "The Ultra Rich Are Saving Their Money Instead of Spending It," and this, and now the middle class is buried in debt. And I wasn't really sure how this, um, how this was going to play out, uh, but this was put out by the Chicago Booth Review, which I'm guessing is with the Booth School of Business over in Chicago, um, basically saying the one percent has buried the middle class in debt. And the idea is because the 1% has so much money they're saving, it's more access to banks 
to go ahead and lend out. And this, you know, we have a low interest rate environment for middle class people. It fuels borrowing, right? Because yeah. all of a sudden, you know, that house that was a four and a half percent mortgage rate, I'm getting at 275 today, better get that rate. Or, man, instead of saving up to pay cash for that car, I'm getting one or two percent. Why? I mean, we've heard that. Why would I pay cash if I could do this? And the 1% is keeping their money in savings because they don't have to borrow, right? Which well, yeah, is allowing they're, yeah, more, they're more lending. Financing. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting article um, that was out there. And is some debt productive? Yeah. I mean, there's productive debt. If you're going to buy an asset that potentially could appreciate in value, especially right now, if you think about what's going on, we have all this talk of inflation and inflation's real. It's here now. But if you went and locked a mortgage rate in at 2.25% or 2.75, and you've watched the value of your home price go up dramatically, for some people, that might be the best the best purchase they've made. I'm not going to call your home an investment because I don't believe it's an investment unless you're going to sell it and take the gain. Most people don't. But from a pure wealth building standpoint, for a lot of people, that is one of their largest assets. Yeah, it is. And this question here in this article is debt productive. So what I was thinking about was, okay, so when when is debt like really bad for you? Well, it's really bad for you when you're going paycheck to paycheck just to make your payments. Now, if you are saving at a as a, a good contribution rate, I'm talking about your long-term savings for whatever age you are for your goals at the end of that, and you want to borrow some money to buy a car um, or even finance a house, um, you know, because if you can, I would say like a vehicle, if you can pay for it, just pay cash for it and be done with it. But if it's a matter of I need a more reliable vehicle so I can get to work and you have some money for a down payment and you can finance it for a while and help your cash flow, like to me, that's a productive use of debt. But I think what people need to watch out and especially in the middle class is if you can afford the $30,000 car, but now you want to get into the $70,000 diesel pickup or whatever it may be, because that's just what you want, but you really can't afford. That's when debt really becomes unproductive. And that's when you're going to run into problems. Well, I think there's another side of this coin too. There, there may be people analyzing what we call the opportunity cost of their dollars. And what I mean by that is, let's say we have a individual as a stock portfolio or investment portfolio, whatever it is, and it's generating X return. They may look at that and say, well, if I sold $50,000 of these funds to buy this car, I gave up the return. Let's say it's 5%. Well, if I earn five there, but I could have borrowed at one for the car, they may be looking at an opportunity cost analysis there as to whether I should do it. So it's not just if you're borrowing to make a payment, it could be borrowing to utilize the opportunity cost of the money you've accumulated. Yeah. So you're, yeah. Borrowing so you can keep, right. Keep saving or at least not keep earning your interest, yeah, keep right? Earning if interest on that money. It's easy math. Right. If you borrow one and you're earning five, you're net four ahead. That's easy math. Um, that said, if you all your money's in your savings account, you're earning half a percent and the loan you're taking is two, you might as well just pay cash for it because you're still paying more interest than you're earning. So um, I just th kind of thought that was a really um, good lead in to that article and how we're seeing um, some of the wealthiest people 
um, in America save money and use it in different ways. And the other article I ran across, and you remember Daniel Crosby, he wrote the book, um, Laws of Wealth, and there's another one he wrote. But I follow him on LinkedIn. Do you follow him on LinkedIn? Uh, no, I don't follow him on LinkedIn. I've read his book, The Laws of Wealth. Okay, so I follow him. He usually posts some pretty eye-opening stuff, and most of all of his information revolves around you know, personal finance and behavioral finance, right? How people mm -hmm. behave with money and the whole idea that a person's behavior probably has significantly more to do with their outcome financially than the actual investments that they, they have. Yeah. And, and he or posted, ability to analyze investments and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he posted an article, um, not an article, just a chart. And it caught my eye. And that's why it caught my eye. And it said the value of advice increases over time. And you know, I kind of changed the verbiage there. It compounds over time. You know, we've talked about the compounding effect where you have a young person who starts saving money at a, you know, 20. They have a lot of years to compound. We, just the compounding of wealth. Well, this was the difference in household financial assets attributable to financial advice. Okay. And how it compounds over time that they're receiving financial advice. Okay, so it's like a, we're looking at a comparison of no, do-it-yourselfers versus working with a professional. Hundred percent. And then the what? The amount of wealth accumulated over time. Okay. The difference in wealth over time. The difference. Got it. So most do-it-yourselfers think they can figure this out, and they very well could. Most can, and this this highlights why they're really not doing that great of a job. No advice, obviously, is the bar. In four to six years, someone who's been receiving advice, and this study is done by the um, the Investment Funds Institute of Canada, so it's a Canadian study, but you know it doesn't matter. Borders are, you know, we cross borders. It is what it is. Well, yeah, and psychological behavior is very similar. It doesn't no matter change. where you are. It's they're like highly regulated. Culture, yeah, they're a very highly regu regulated market, more regulated than in, in America. Um, so, over four to six years of receiving financial advice, on average, the person getting advice has one point five eight times the financial assets of somebody not getting advice. So just over one and a, one half, and a half in the ballpark of five years, four to six years, one and a half times. Yep. Seven to 14 years, it's 1.99 times. So almost two times. So you're almost double. And if you've had 15 years of financial advice, 2.73 times. And that's being with an advisor for 15, 15 years, plus years. And these are averages. Right. So what it goes down to is how many people, think about this, how many people go and get an advisor What's the big event in most people's lives? I'm retiring. I better better see about doing this financial plan today. Yeah. Wait until right. 57. A of, yeah, a lot of people, yep. Think if they would have started when they were 32. Yeah. Or 42. Where they would be today. What this shows me, though, is even though you might be feel like you're doing a great job, there's benefit to financial advice. Absolutely. So if you haven't met with an advisor or you haven't got any advice... I'd ask everybody to go to the btwellshow.com and click the button, you know, look for a planner, get a plan. We help people do that. But this highlights why what we're doing is important. It's yeah. easy for me to tell, get on the show and say, hey, you should do a financial plan and move yourself from the, you know, the bias to the unbiased, unbiased, probabilistic world. That's easy to say. This supports why we believe in that. No part of this study talked about the best investment. 
the best investment someone can do is get a financial plan and get yeah. financial advice. That's the best investment. It's not whether the next hot meme stock is going to take off or Bitcoin's going to the moon or I have tendies flying everywhere. I don't know. The best investments <laughs> planning for your future. So you have this really nice glide path and you execute a plan. One time you equated it to a football game. You know, you don't go to the Super Bowl and not have a plan. Uh, no. <laughs> right? No. No one's winging it. And no. no one's winging it in general. Certainly not the Super Bowl. And think about what an individual investor Super Bowl is. It's retirement. Yeah, right, that's man? the big event. That's yeah. the Super Bowl. How do we make sure we win the Super Bowl? Or like you're, you talked about your basketball coach, how do we put ourselves in the position to win the Super Bowl? Yeah. Right. And I've said this before on the show, and I've actually said this in conversation with people, because one thing that gets brought up um, and, you know, we have meetings with prospective clients and other people. And sometimes people ask or just in general, they'll make a comment in conversation. Well, why would I pay for something that I can do for myself? Well, studies like this show that the average person is not that effective at doing it for themselves. And the other question, the other thing I'll pose to people is say, show me someone who started with an advisor when they were in their twenties or young in their, or even around 30, who started with an advisor, got good advice for 30, 30 plus years and turned out unsuccessful at building wealth. And was there a cost associated with that? Yes. But if you hit all of your goals, the fee that you paid to get there, is it even relevant at that point? It's not relevant. It's the net result. And the, then just like this study, after 15 years, if you're almost, if what, 2.7? 2.73 times. Yeah, so 2.73 times the wealth. I mean, we, we could raise the fee. We could charge three times what we're charging. Not that we're going to. I'm just saying, like, it's very, that, to me, that's insignificant. That's not a good reason. Saying, well, I shouldn't, I just don't want to pay someone. That's to me, that's not a good reason to not get advice from a professional. You know what? If they're hung up on the fee, they'll be less successful because that they believe that's the thing that's going to make them successful is the lowest cost. And that's not true. Vanguard has a study that yeah. quantifies the value of an advisor. It's close to 3% a year. And this is by the company who believes <laughs> right. in low cost investments. Low Are low cost. cost investments important? Yeah, but if you're working with a fiduciary, they're gonna get you into the investments that make the most sense for you as an individual in your unique circumstance. Yeah, so, and they're cost, they're cost conscious of the portfolio anyway, and the investments that are in it. Someone says they don't wanna pay the fee, they're just not that serious. They really yeah. don't wanna go through this. Maybe they're nervous about what they're gonna find. You know. It, it just doesn't make that much of a difference because most people's fees are fair. I just saw, um, I was watching um, the compound, of course. They were talking about the greatest Every week. the greatest hedge fund of all time. And I didn't catch the name of it. It's Medallion or Magellan. I'll, I'm going to go back and watch. It was just like really brief. Since 1980, this funded average gross of fees like 68% a year. Was it, is it, it's probably the Renaissance fund, I think. Nah, I don't, I don't know. I'll no. have to go back and watch, but here's what I found amazing. Do you know what their fee was that they charge people for? Well, most hedge funds are like two and 20, but I think this one's like even higher, like five and 44. Five, yeah. So, they so can what charge that means, whatever they want. 5% of asset management fees. So 5% at the top, 44% of profits, net of fees that return to their clients, 39% a year. Annually. Annually. So yeah. how relevant was the fee? 
It wasn't. Yeah, if you look at the 66% and say I pay 30 in fees, I think every single person out there would love to get 39% return on their investments, net of fees. I mean, if you so, if you don't think that's fair, you're, you're, but, you're crazy. But think I about guess. how people think. If I said, yep, the fee's 5 and 44, 5% a year and 44% of the profits, oh, no. what's the first thing? No way, I'd never do that, really. Okay, move on. The, the interesting thing about this is, they realized that they couldn't grow the fund larger than $10 billion and still be able to make the maneuvers and trades they needed to make. It's a 100% quant fund, so it's all mathematically driven. It started by a mathematician, um, so it takes out the human emotion of everything. Yeah. And all the money today is primarily employee money. They've returned all outside money, so even family friends and family of the owners they've returned money to. It's literally just owners and employees at this point yeah. that they're managing funds for. But I thought right. that's a great highlight to why fees aren't that relevant. What's relevant is the net result, right? It's it, here's yeah. a great, here's another example of why fees aren't relevant. If you sold your house today, you're going to pay a realtor. If you sell the house for net more than you do on your own, did it matter that you paid the realtor 7%? No. No. And typically they're going to get more money for you because they know how to market it. We all think it's easy to sell a house. It's not that easy. No. So um, I just think it's important for people to realize that financial success and wealth shouldn't be valued in fees. It should be valued in the advice that you're getting because that yeah. will lead to longer term returns. And we've seen study after study after study that shows that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. So the value of the advice that you're getting from your advisor, and then we talk a lot about the value of time, desire, knowledge, and how, you know, that's what we become when people decide to delegate those things to us. And then, so we're talking about the value of advice. And so this article came across, COVID-19 cases may cause an S&P 500 correction. Um, so we've seen there's like a little bit of resurgence in COVID-19 cases. Yesterday, the market was down. Um, I haven't looked this morning, so I don't know what the activity is. I think the futures were suggesting it was going to open up. But um, I have, actually I have a couple thoughts on this. Another, the article talked about what we're seeing is called, there's this thing called the July chop. So when you have a strong first half of the year, a lot of times there is a decline in the month of July. And I guess people use the term the July chop. So a couple of things I thought about, we've already had a strong beginning of the year. And then I was wondering, so let's say the market just traded f relatively flat for the rest of the year with the gains that we've already seen. And if there were no more gains to be had this year, don't you think most people would still be happy with the result? I mean, I don't know where it's at, but most people with some type of a balanced portfolio they even have some bonds, they're probably between 8 and 10% return on the year if you're all equity, 14, 15, 16, depending upon where your assets are positioned, obviously. Right. You know, if you were all in growth, you might have underperformed because we've had value companies be a little bit of a catalyst. But we're seeing stuff like small cap who had a great run. They've already pulled off their highs. But it highlights why having a plan and a very well diversified portfolio makes sense. I pulled up a chart and we use this for years, but um, this is actually from Schwab uh, and it says stock market corrections are not uncommon, right? And I think that we are stuck in, if you look over the last 11 years, we've really had two corrections. The fall of 08, the market went down 18, 18 to 20% in a quarter and it came right back. 
and then COVID, which was of self. 2018, you mean? Yeah, 2018. Yeah. Market went down 18 to 20% in the fourth quarter. It came right back. And then COVID last year is the first, you know, market corrections we've really seen. And to be honest, there hasn't been that much downward pressure anywhere over the last 11 years. But here's what's interesting. Schwab has a chart. We'll put this on the website. If you want to see it, it's btwellshow.com. Um, and they, it talks about how um, market corrections are not uncommon. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's common. It should so happen. It's here's, going to happen. Here's the drawdowns over the last 20 years. I'm going to read these, and then I'm going to read where the market's finished. Okay. Um, so 2003, the market at one time, top to bottom, went down 13%. Market finished positive 28.7. 2004, there was a 7% drop. Finished positive 10. There was a minus 7 in 2005, top to bottom. Finished it up 4.5. In 2006, the market went down 7.8 one time. Finished positive 15. You can see the trend. The market has corrections. It's not a straight line up. So we should expect volatility. If the market went down 7, 8, 9, 10%, that wouldn't be the end of the world. People right now have this bias that it is the end of the world because of what just happened with COVID. We had the big drop. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, man, it's going to happen again. It doesn't mean it's going to happen again. Volatility is normal. What's not normal is just a constant straight line up. That's not normal. Yeah, and that's what uh, I actually read. I think it was a book called The Excellent Investment Advisor, and he was he was commenting on how when he talks about volatility, he, do, he doesn't even use that language he's he always says well short-term price fluctuations so i almost think that's a good way for people to think about it is it's such a short-term fluctuation in the price and the other thing that these what you all the events you were just talking about where there was a drawdown the market came back so hopefully what investors have learned is that by sticking it out and not selling just like our example of the worst investor of all time you can buy in at market highs and just never sell and still be successful. Well, hopefully people were reward were rewarded enough times by sticking to their planning that now that's just like going to be the way they operate where, yeah, maybe they do expect a sell off or some point or a drawdown at some point and they're already planning. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with it because this has been working. Okay. Let me tell you what's ironic. The yeah. next line under this chart this is put up by Schwab having a longer term plan and sticking to it is key to investment success. Well, yeah, it we sums know that. Up everything would, it, it's just ironic. I didn't know that was there because I just pulled this chart up when we were yeah. talking. Um, but it's just ironic that if you just think of the common theme, theme here, it's having a plan, a long term plan and sticking to it and executing it. Yeah. Um, and so drowning I, and ignoring the noise. Like I understand that, you know, if a really the new, um, variation of COVID. Yeah, that could cause a lot of bad things, but some of it market related, you do have to have an ability to just block that out and don't let it bother you. And clearly it's unknown what's going to happen with this new Delta variant because, right. you know, there's talk of, you know, not, you know, disallowing some travel and we've heard the word shut down. I don't know if they're going to have, if they'll actually do that or not. Um, but at some point it won't be like it was, you know, last spring, I wouldn't guess because, we have a certain percentage of the population is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we have to shut this whole country down because we don't have a solution to the problem. Um, but that leads me to another thing. We're talking about the market going down. 
Um, another thing going down, and it's COVID-related, Elias, is uh, on July 17th, Yahoo Finance brought out an article that says U.S. mortgage rates fall for a third week as COVID-19 delivers uncertainty. And mortgage rates have been historically low, I mean, for a long time. But you're seeing mortgage rates now back to, on a, on a 30-year, about 2.88 is what's um, quoted here. Um, but what's ironic, November 2018, mortgage rates hit 4.94%, and we're at 2.88. Yeah. I, I had a talk, I, I went to an event, great event, called Aiming, Aiming for a Cure down in Iowa City this past weekend um, with one of my bankers. We were talking about this and talking about, you know, probably get your house refinance now because we'll probably never see a lower interest rate. You know what I said to him? I said, I've been playing that game since 2002. That's yeah, a 20, refinance 20 like year 11 game. Time. That's a 20 I mean, year game now. And while we believe they probably won't go lower, we don't know that. It's, it, yeah, right. It's an, it's still a prediction at that point. It right? begs we the, don't know that it's going to go. It lower. begs the question. Are we more likely to go to 3% on the 10 year negative? I don't know. It, yeah, I, I don't know. I, that's a good question. I guess I've heard some compelling arguments that we could go to negative interest rates, but isn't the Federal Reserve like they're not? They're saying they're not going to do that. Well, there's other ways to stimulate the economy. I don't know as if this economy actually needs lots of stimulus right now um, with yeah, inflation well, rises with different things. Right. But I thought thought that's interesting as you know interest rates are starting to fall, um, signaling that they're a little concerned about what's happening with the new. Um, Delta variant of COVID. Yeah. yeah, and I actually I had a um, client call me the other day and ask about a refinance, and I just asked her a raise. I think she said she's paying like four and a quarter, and then with rates as low as they are, I said it would probably make sense to go just go ahead and refinance, lock it in for thirty years, lower your payment. Or I think what the bank was talking to her about is she could refinance to a fifteen year, and her payment would basically be the same that it is now, but she could accelerate the date that it's paid off. So I thought both of those scenarios will work out good for her. Yeah, I mean, if you have a good banker, most good bankers will tell you, hey, here's the numbers. I mean, you could go out and find an amortization calculator. Just look at this is how much I'm going to save over 15 years by doing the different loan. You know, if it makes sense to do it by the time you pay closing costs and you might have to pay an origination fee, just find out what all the fees are. Mm -hmm. But usually depending upon your loan, you know, it, if you say one to one and a half percent, maybe it makes sense to refinance. So should we uh, talk about meme stocks going into their longest losing run since the frenzy began? You've We're got talking about things up. going down. Yeah. Um, so apparently there's 37 meme stocks that are tracked by Bloomberg. And right now, collectively, the 37 are in their longest losing streak. So longest streak of going down in value since... When was it? Was that in the fall? Was it in the fall when that started, the would, short squeeze on GameStop? I think it was more summer. It was kind of like right. close to the end of summer? Yeah, I believe. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at exactly when it started. But um, some of the you know biggest names in there is GameStop, AMC. AMC's actually down 25% since yeah. that time. But at some point, the question begs with the meme stocks, can the momentum stay forever? At some point, did we, do they do they just run out of energy to do this. Does the the sizzle of the Reddit board and the get rich quick idea start to sizzle? And maybe we're seeing that. You know, another um another company in the meme stock that saw huge gains was New Egg Commerce. It's lost sixty percent of its value in two weeks after going up two hundred and eighty seven percent in three days. So it just goes to show that for most people, this shouldn't be part 
of your long-term financial plan, buying and trying to pick an individual stock. Because the gains come, the losses come as fast as the gains come, and more than likely, you're gonna get caught on the wrong side of that. And what I mean is if you bought it when it went up 287%, you just lost 60. Yeah, well, and it goes back to the story in our office, I think you said Jeff tells where you can win eight out of 10 times, but like this is a scenario where if one or two of those situations goes just catastrophic against you, you could lose everything that you had in it from the beginning. Um, so yeah, I mean, could it work? I'm sure there's people that have made money doing it, but, um, you know, that could, it, it, I'm sure there's a lot of people lost money too, I guess is what I'm getting at. We, you don't hear about that. That's like a gambler. You only hear when the gambler wins, well, you don't hear about the losses. Yeah. Or the, sometimes I hear from people tell a story of a stock that they bought and it went up. And then a lot of time that story transitions to, well, then I got stupid. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so when did the shoe drop? You have Let to me hear the up. rest of the story. No one ever tells you about their losers. <laughs> they don't tell you about how they crashed and burned. Yeah. That doesn't sound fun and exciting. So, Well, but, every gambler, you know, they're even at the casino for their life, right? That's the story. <laughs> yeah. The classic is, well, you know, I won, 600 on, I won 600 on the machine last night. They didn't tell you that they put in seven. <laughs> right? You think about it when you see someone holding up their ticket $600. Yeah. Well, that just means you pulled 600 out of the machine. It doesn't actually tell you how much you put in. Right. Well, yeah, like I can put 1000 in and draw it down to 600 and hit a ticket and be like, I won 600 I don't win anything. That's how it's all narrative at that point. So it makes you feel good. If anybody out there is looking to move themselves from the biased world into the non-biased probabilistic world and get out of the gambling mentality, go to our website, btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to get you a plan um, and move you out of that kind of gambling mentality if you're there. So any other closing remarks for the show, Elias? Um, just everybody. Thanks for listening. And yeah. And if you want help, just reach out to us. We'll, we'd be happy to help you. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional 